Welcome to Hope and Heresy, Life on the Religious Left, where we wrestle with contemporary issues using history and theology as our guides. Our task is to reclaim religion for everyday people who want to live meaningfully without letting arbitrary doctrine or oppressive religious practice prevent us from asking big questions about our complicated world. I'm Reverend Sarah Lindsay. And I'm Reverend Peggy Clark, and we're Unitarian Universalist Ministers broadcasting from Community Church of New York here in New York City. It's good to see you this Advent. Happy December. (laughs) You too. We're talking about stuff that I think is really personal to us today. Stuff that's like, really, but how do we live? (laughs) What what do our lives look like? We were just talking about um, things going on in my church. And I think that that it's a great story for us to, to start with. So I'm... I'm senior minister at Community Church of New York, which has this like very proud history. And and a lot of that history starts, it's an early 20th century, and it starts the way that we tell the story. It starts with the senior minister going to the board and then to the congregation with these very bold moves around how we live the social gospel and what does that look like in practice and and the church made massive changes in response to what he was saying. What we don't really talk about a lot is that John Haynes Holmes was married and had kids. And, and in order for him to get to a place where he could go to his congregation with these ideas, he was sort of in his own spiritual crisis and wasn't sure what he was doing. And he had this job offer in Chicago and thought maybe he would take that. So he told his wife he needed time away and he got on a train and went to Boston from New York and stayed there like I think it was a week or 10 days and stayed with his parents and didn't talk he wrote he spent all of that time writing and just thinking about his life and and every time people talk about community church and you know this great man and everything he did I think well, that's because there was a woman at home who was taking care of everything else. Like, there's no way in my life that I could possibly say, okay, honey, I'm going to go for a few weeks and think and write and, you know, goodbye. Like, there's just, women don't have those choices today. I don't, I don't they didn't have the choices then either, right? So, so much of like who and what my church is really is dependent on the fact that men could do the work that they were able to do in a way that women couldn't then, and I don't think can now. Oh yeah, definitely, I I would say definitely can't now, for the most part, maybe someone somewhere. Um, But I certainly, there's no way I could like disappear for 10 days. And no way, honestly, that if I did, I would be able to let go of the mental work. Like people talk about the sort of mental and emotional work that women have to do, right, of like, thinking about when the next doctor's appointment is and remembering what's in the refrigerator and do we need to grocery shop and what's going on with the laundry and what are we, and the idea that I could just like drop everything for 10 days, go somewhere, write without giving a second thought to the life I'd left back home for those 10 days, right? It's kind of 
like I'll admit I'm a little jealous. I'd love to be able to do that. And I, I can't even fathom how it would work. Um, I know my assistant minister said to me something like, you know, it'd be great when you can really articulate your vision for the church. And my response was, well, I'm going to take a week vacation in January and, you know, I'll, I'll see what I can do to, to put this together. And I realized, first of all, I'm, I'm now considering using my vacation time for work because frankly, that that's often the way it works. And I have a family. I mean, I do have, I have a husband and kid and a house and a mom. And I'm like, there, there are other things that, that I do, that women do in our time. Everything gets, every moment gets filled. It's true. And it, it sort of, it brings to mind that idea of the leg. You can have everything, right? I was saying earlier, like the myth that I sort of, I feel like girls in my generation growing up, the myth that we heard, certainly what I was hearing was, you can do everything. You can have a partner, you can have children, you can have a job and it's all going to be great and you're going to be amazing, right? And the reality is you can have all those things, but can you have them all and feel really good about what you're doing when you're doing all of them, right? Can you feel like you're performing at your top at work and at home and in your partnership? And I think for me, the answer is like, no, I, I never feel like I'm performing up to my potential at work. And I never feel like I'm as good a mom as I think I could be or want to be, right? Um, and so thinking about like, what did, what were the myths that we each were taught right? What were we, what were we fed? What line were we fed as kids? And then what's the reality of being a working parent? You're a working mom with a partner. I'm a working mom without a partner. Um, what's the reality now? You know, my mom was one of those women who was brought up, and she's a baby boomer. I was raised to believe that she was going to graduate high school and get married and have kids. And that if she went to college, it was, uh, and her friends who went to college, it was sort of to meet men or to learn something interesting, right? but it was not a career-based choice to go to school. And she was actually not of a class where women necessarily went to, to college. That, so she did, and she graduated high school and she got married at 18. And then after having kids, she went back to school she actually had gone to NYU, she got a master's and then she went to Sarah Lawrence and got certifications and and broke into the field, right? And became a career woman and had a really successful career. And then the story I was told really was that she and women like her had forged this path. They broke through the expectation that women get married and have kids and that they had created for me and my generation, the Gen X, that now we could graduate high school and go to college. Now there are two, there's two incomes, there's extra money and you can go to school and get a career. And what do you love? I mean, my father used to say to me all the time, study what you love and you know, do what you wanna do. And yet nobody said, and a man right now is being told that he's gonna be raising children, right? That, that you're gonna have some, that you'll be able to do like half-time work and half-time parenthood or it was what ended up happening is that my generation we have to work full-time the only way that we can afford to live even close to where our parents lived is if there are two incomes and men were not 
raised with the expectation or in any way even being taught how to take care of families in that. I mean, with the expectation maybe of making money, but not of like taking care of the kids for two weeks while you go off and meditate. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. So my mom, um, one of four children, three were daughters, and one went and had a, a wildly successful um, career in finance. One, um, actually, my mother and her and her twin sister were both stay-at-home moms. My aunt went on to like become a robust volunteer at a local organization, but my mom was a stay-at-home mom. Never went back to work. Never, you know. Um, and so I sort of weirdly, right? Like I kind of grew up with a little vision of like, oh, I'll meet someone in college, I'll get married, I won't work, I'll stay home with the kids. And like that is not what happened. Um, right. So I didn't the the um model that you had of your mom and the two incomes and the going to work and all that, like I didn't actually have any of that, right? The the model I had for parenting while working as a woman was my aunt, who was in finance, I'm in ministry, right? So she had a nanny. Um, that was able to do a lot of the things that working women often end up stuck with, right? So the the experience, right, and our, our producer Amy reminded us of this, the experience of every woman is like wildly, wildly different, right? Like there's no monolith of working moms, there's no, you know, um, but the way that those, like, the way that those messages implant and then how we feel about, right, because I would look at my aunt and be like, I don't want to not raise my kids, right? Um, so then, and I would look at my mom and be like, she did a great job raising her kids. And so, but, so, but then I have this total guilt, right. That like, as a working parent, I'm not present enough for my children. And as a parent, I'm not present enough for my congregation, like, especially now during the pandemic. Um, and I think it's interesting. I also, I think we should talk at some point about like, how do we, how do you manage that? How do you manage the sort of the disappointment of, you can't really, you can have it all, but you can't necessarily have it all exactly the way you thought you would have it, right? Well, I mean, I find that I can't have it all well. What? <laughs> That's really important. Who did my mother? I mean, my mother may have forged this path, but parenting at, was very different. They were really hands-off parents. I mean, the style of parenting in like the 70s and 80s was... Like, I mean, I didn't see my parents very often. After school, we just played until it got dark and then came home. And like, it just, they didn't ask questions. I mean, at some point when I was in high school, I got into real trouble and I was like, hey, this is what's going on with me. And my mother's like, yeah, I thought something. I'm like, you thought something? <laughs> Why didn't you say anything? But that wasn't the style of parenting. It was like, they'll work it out. and. So, I don't, you know, she had this great career, but I'm not entirely sure that she was parenting in the way that my generation, your gen, like the way that we're parenting. Right? I'm parenting, I, I'm, I mean, you know, we're accused of like being helicopter parents or I'm, I'm not quite that bad, but, but I am on top of my kids in a way that, that like my mother wasn't, right? like my generation, we are paying much more attention. Yeah. So it makes it harder like if I'm going to be asking all the questions and getting to know his friends and doing all of that, it becomes harder to also be working. And you and I are working in careers that like 40 hours isn't even, I mean, my contract is six days a week. I mean, it's not even, they're not even pretending <laughs> that it's a 40 hour job. We need to work on that contract for you. <laughs> That's not cool. Um, 
I mean, I don't think it's unfair because I get eight weeks off, right? So it's like, yeah. And and as a minister, you're always sort of working. I mean, even I think that's more the point. Working and working. Yeah, I think more of the point is there's an expectation of being constantly on and available no matter what. Um, which I think a lot of us try to sort of work against, right? We try to work towards a model that's more sustainable and less burnout, uh, less expected burnout for a minister. Um, but I think, you know, I, I think that part of it is um, maybe a natural kind of human maturation and progression, which is eventually maybe we just stop um, demanding of ourselves that we do everything perfectly. Like I, I will tell you, so um, occasionally I attempt to online date and one of the questions is, are you a perfectionist? Like one of these like matching questions on one of these things. And I, I put no, which was not, if you'd asked me, you know, 20 years ago, I'd have been like, yes. And now I'm like, nope, I'm a recovering perfectionist. <laughs> because I think that actually, like, what is it? Like perfection is the enemy of the good, right? Something like that. Um, and I think that's true for, for women and parenting and child raising and all of these things. One of the most liberating things that my father ever said to me when I first was pregnant with my oldest child was you do your best and no matter what they're going to find a reason to sit on that therapist's couch and I was like that is really helpful right so when you let go of this like if I don't bake brownies for them after school like my mother did I'm a terrible mom right or if I'm not available in my congregation 24 hours a day the minute they email me I'm a terrible minister like when I can let go of that stuff which isn't easy to let go of. I think that it actually helps create more joy in both of those bits of human work, right? Like my job and my motherhood. And that's kind of the point, right? Like, isn't kind of the point. That was the overriding message I got. My dad became a lawyer because it was functional. He could make money and support his family, right? And my mom didn't have a job. So for my, for my family, work was like the thing you did. And the message that like my dad constantly sort of gave to us was do something that you actually enjoy. And that was the freedom and privilege, right? Of children of, you know, middle, upper middle class folks is that we had the capacity to try a bunch of things and find something we loved and go to the right schools to get there and da da da. right? Like a lot of this is based in privilege, but that was like, of all the myths, that was also maybe one of them was like, do a thing you love and it won't feel like work. Right. Um, or like, don't work to live or like, don't live to, what is it? Don't live to work, work to live or whatever. Like all these phrases about how you should follow your passion and da da And yes, and nothing is perfect all of the time, right? Nothing is always wonderful. Well, and I think that some of that perfectionism you're talking about, I mean, I think we put that on ourselves, but I think we also put it on each other. I think that there's a way in which women are, um, you know what, I'm actually gonna turn this around. So I, what I'm about to say is, I think there's a way in which women judge each other, but I actually think what happens is that we judge ourselves and then we we create this illusion of expectation, right? So I, I go to my, I have a sister-in-law who's so fabulous and she throws these parties, it's like theme parties for kids, like for her own kids. And I, I would watch her parent and think, she is so good at this and really not so much about creating this expectation for her to be perfect, but for me to live up to what I'm imagining her life is. And other parents here, you know, 
around me when they do something that's amazing. And some of them really do. I'm judging myself and thinking, well, I'm not half this good. I'm not half this creative. I just don't, I'm not on top of all these things. I can't get it all done. And, and I think I'm, in doing that, I'm creating then the pressure for them to keep living up to this expectation that I have now created of them. We do it all the time. We do it to ourselves. We do it to each other. It's not fair. I totally, and I totally do it. I I totally recognize what you're saying in terms of parents, right? Where I'll be like, oh my God, this birthday party. I could, I just can't, I am not on it enough to replicate this, right? As if that were like the requirement to be a good parent was to replicate what other moms are doing, right? Um, But I also feel like it's true at work too, right? Like I'll be, I'll be like in one of our Facebook colleague groups and people be talking about how they're working 60 hour weeks. And I'm like, I am not working 60 hour weeks. And I'll be like, on the one hand, I'll feel terrible. And on the other hand, I'll be like, but you shouldn't be working a 60 hour week either because the system is terrible. And I think that's for me, that's sort of what it comes back to is like all of those impulses to be like, am I good enough at this? Or am I doing the right thing in this way? And am I working enough? Or am I, it's all part of the like, you know, not to sound like truly radical, or maybe I do mean to, but it's all part of the system, right? The like patriarchal capitalist system. You're all going to get tired of hearing me talk about this, right? But the whole like 40 hour work week, I, I was telling um, Peggy and, and Amy that I saw this meme that was like the 40 hour work week was created when you had someone at home cooking and cleaning and doing all the things, right? And it's all all like the 40 hour, the 30 hour work week. Nobody needs to work that. Um, we don't need crazy birthday parties. We might enjoy them. And if they're fun, great, go for it. But none of these things are like, if you don't do them, you're somehow a failure at your life, right? Like, but it's all part of the system. You know, when, when Zach was, I'm trying to think, I think he was two years old. I think it was his second birthday. And I was so nervous about his party. I had my sister come do it. She, and she handcrafted like gifts for all the people. She made like these like plastic trays with this glittered, beautiful handwriting for each kid's name. And then they used these to sit on the floor and then they all had craft projects like on there. I mean, she, she did a phenomenal job, but I was so nervous that I couldn't do it. And her kids were older. I'm like, "I, I need help. She's like, okay, we've got this. And you know what she didn't say? Who cares? It's a two-year-old birthday party. What like what are you so nervous about? Yeah. It's just kids in a room. <laughs> but I was. I and I worried about it for weeks and I like set up my house. And that's been true since. The I mean, birthday parties I think are a good example because it's when other mothers are in your house. And there is this time thing, right? Um that there isn't, there's only so much time in a day. And I think we judge each other on what we prioritize. Mm -hmm. What is it that you value the most? I just heard somebody say that, that the current president of the PTO in my school believes that parents who aren't on the PTO simply don't like their children, don't love their children as much, like aren't as committed to their children. I just feel like, really? (laughs) 
<laughs> how do we get to a place where someone would even articulate that? Where like you think it's okay to say something like that, but we create this, right? We create it, we reinforce it, we pass it around to each other. And then we like bring in the big guns for a two-year-old birthday party to try and live up to this bizarre expectation we've all set up. I remember though, I mean, I, I sort of, I deep breathed at that comment, but I, I remember feeling guilty when my son was in the public school near where we live. I remember feeling bad that I wasn't like actively doing, you know, PTA stuff. We call it the PTA here, um, you know, and like doing more and like, and I just, um, I think part of the, part of what's under all of this is again, broken record me, but part of what's under all of this is this very modern in the context of human history notion that as an individual mother or as an individual family unit, you ought to be able to do all these things. Like the reality is you need the people who are on the PTA and you need the people who aren't on the PTA and you need the people who are working and you need like it, none of us do it alone. Like I hate to be that person who says it takes a village, but the reality is all of that stuff that we take on, we take on because we think somehow as an individual, I should be able to work 60 hours at work, do everything at home, raise the perfect model children that no one ever thinks are, you know, feral tyrants and like everything should be beautiful and perfect. And, and I, there are people in my life, in my family who definitely have that sort of, if everything isn't perfect, then everything is awful. And it took me, I will tell you, it took me a long time to sort of shed that familial belief and get to a place where I could be like, you know what, like, okay is good enough, right? Like the good enough mantra and also the asking for help, right? Like I was not, when I was young, you would not have ever heard me or seen me asking for help. And somewhere, I know I, we could dissect this on another day, we can armchair psychologize me, right? But at some point, right, the realization that I was not capable of living as an island happened. And now I will, right? Like, I'll say to a friend, I can't get there in time. Can you pick up my kid and bring him home, right? Or can you take my kid today because he's making me friggin' nuts, right? Or whatever it is. Like, there's, I... And it's liberating, right? Like it's liberating to get to a place where you can say, I don't, not only can't I, I don't need to. And if you want to take it a step further and the expectation that I should is actually damaging all of us, right? Yeah, I mean, I think we could be pretty animated about all the, the things that are wrong, but as you're shifting us into how we, what do we do about it? I mean, I go back to this idea of community I, you know, we have to be looking out for each other. We, sometimes we have to say things to each other, like, you know, are you working too hard? But a lot of it is just a really simple, I'll get your kid and drop him off. You know, just whatever the details are of your life. Right now I'm looking for a dog. I really wish I had another dog. I don't have the time to try and find one. So I've got uh, this friend who keeps looking for dogs for us. And, and the thing is, I'm incredibly grateful because my kid really wants another dog. It's something now is a really good time, but I don't have time to search rescue. I mean, there, it's a complicated process. So she's just been doing it for us. So 
mean, whatever the details are, we have to be doing this in partnership. Yeah, I think that's a huge piece. I think the other thing that comes to my mind, and um, I don't know that we've said this before, but both Peggy and I are raising children that are currently cisgender male children. Um, and I think that a huge piece of it too is how we and others raise our male identified children. Because I, I think one of what's one of the interesting questions for me too is do men sit around thinking about how they can't have it all or they can't do everything perfectly? Or are they like John Haynes Holmes being like, I'm gonna go off for my 10 day like retreat and do my thing, right? Like, so I have a brother and he he does cook and clean and do things around his house, right? Um, not because he watched my dad do that. My parents had a much more traditionally gendered situation going on, right? But somewhere my brother learned to pitch in in certain ways. I obviously don't know the details of how their life works, but you know, by all appearances, he's doing a lot of the child raising, he's doing a lot of the, so I think about like with my boys, right? I can't model a different kind of heterosexual relationship since I don't have a husband, but I can talk to them about like, and I can teach them to cook and to clean and to do the laundry, right? And that that's part of their responsibility too. And that just as a woman has to think about what we're female identified person has to think about, are you going to, you know, are you going to feel good about your work? Are you going to feel good about your parenting? How are you going to sort of handle all of these aspects of your life? We have to actively talk to our male identified children about that as well, so that it doesn't continue to be the purview of women to like angst over this whole thing, you know? Yep. I opened the refrigerator yesterday and this chicken fell out all over me, all over me. And I was like, eh. and first my son and husband laughed really hard. They thought that was very funny, but it was my favorite sweater. And I was not thinking it was funny. And my husband just said, well, just give it to me. I'll go wash it, which is what he did. He took my sweater, he did whatever he did. And there are no stains in my sweater. There is something, and my son witnessed that, right? That it wasn't like I, I had cooked the dinner and I had cleaned it up but I wasn't doing like, but we were still sharing what it means to be in this house. Yeah, I mean, some of the balance is like both finding partners and raising male identified children to be those partners, that's part of it. And some of it is articulating things like, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect and it's okay one of my closest friends when Zach was born said, you just need to know that nobody really knows how to parent. Like everybody just, mm -hmm. we all just make it up as we go along and every kid is different. So there aren't any real rules and you just kind of figure it out. And sometimes you make mistakes and then you do your best to fix it, <laughs> which is really, really helpful. And I think that's how we're doing. Most of us are doing life like that. We just need to let each other. We just need to say that that's what it is. It's not perfect. There things we do well and things we don't do well and we need to help each other when we're not doing it so well. We need to find those people who can really be in relationship in a really detailed way in our lives so that we know that it's okay to drop the ball sometimes. But I also think, and we can talk about this, but I also think like it's not bad that John Haynes Holmes was able to do what he did. Like maybe everybody should be allowed to go off for 10 days and write and not think about it. So even more than like you and me assuring each other that it's okay to drop the ball and not be perfect and like 
you know, I also don't do this or I do do that. And like, just telling the truth. Maybe it's also important for me to be like, Peggy, leave your kid with me for 10 days and go do something. Right. Or like, like maybe there are ways even more substantial that we should be doing mutuality in parenting and in work. I mean, I, I increasingly see mutuality in work. I think the, the pandemic has also forced that more, right? So people sharing written stuff to be used in congregations, music, also there's all sorts of collaborating that's happening now that wasn't necessarily before, but I think that just needs to extend and grow even further, right? Like that's what like true entwined, supportive, meaningful communities do, right? As they say, you need a break, take a friggin' break and I will deal with things and you don't have to worry, you know? Um, and that's a lot harder. That's a bigger ask, especially if you have three children. It's a much bigger ask. But I think that's like, that's the next step, right? It's like, let's sort of liberate ourselves from the shackles of thinking things have to be perfect and we can do everything. And then let's go one step further and like literally allow each other to not for a while. Right? Because like, when you think about it, you're needing to write a vision for a congregation that has had an amazing history, right? That can't be done in a week even, whether or not you have kids at home. It certainly can't be done in a week during a pandemic when children are homeschooling and da 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 da, da right? So like, how do we take that step into liberating your time in a way that helps you, you know? Yep, and, and a lot of that is about just committing to it. Yeah. Just saying, I'm letting go of the perfectionism. I'm letting go of the expectations. I am getting intentional about partners in this, and just and and committing to it. Yeah. And and dump your kid with me for a week. Right, right, and like really, but, really yeah. being really creating these communities so that we can we can make it happen. Because I agree with you. It not only is it okay that he went off and did that, but if he didn't life would have been really different. I mean, what he did in our church was only part of it. What he did for New York, for the country, and he did some amazing work because he realized he, what he needed. He, he had the time to figure out what is it that he needs to really answer the call. He went to the church, he told them what it was, and then he embodied it because his wife and his parents and his kids and his church all supported the vision, right? It wasn't just his. It has been really great talking to you today, Sarah. I realize our time is coming to an end. Yes. This is a subject really close to our hearts. Yes. And, and one could go on at length about it. Um, there's much, we stop recording, we might. <laughs> there's much, much more to say, um, but. All right, see you next week then. <laughs> Bye.